We are The Table, and we are so glad that you have taken time out of your week to join us. Here at The Table, it is our hope to move you forward in life and faith over the course of this message. At The Table, we do things just a bit differently. We pose questions in real time, and we want to give you some time to wrestle with those questions as well. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope that this message moves you forward. bit about myself. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm one of these preachers that sticks really close to the word. Um, so yeah, there aren't a ton of stories about me in here. There are a couple. Um, so I guess I'll just give you a little bit of a tidbit about who we are. We were global missionaries uh, with the Church of the Nazarene for 10 years. We relocated to the States in 2019, uh, right before it's something that you guys might uh, know called COVID. Uh, so that was a really, ended up being a really interesting time to relocate to the States. Um, we have two children, age 16 and age 10. Uh, I co-pastor the Church of the Nazarene, uh, Chicago Northside Church of the Nazarene. We moved there in September of 2021, and we are so excited that God called us to Chicago. So God has called me here this morning to be faithful with you, to give you a word that he has given me. Today we'll be camped in the book of Ruth. And so you, you can open your word, right? We'll, we'll, we're going to start by reading the first, um, I think it's a, a eight verses, and then we'll kind of move through. Not, I mean, it's several chapters. We're not reading all of, of Ruth today, but we're going to look at what are the most important aspects that I want to leave with you today from Ruth. And really, I'm inviting you into a story. I contend to be a little bit of a narrative preacher, so anybody who has a notebook and you're ready to jot down, like, the points that the pastor is making— I mean, you can still have your notebook. I'm just not going to give you a three-point sermon today. I'm going to invite you into a story. And in that, I want you to, to think of who you are in the story. Right? So we're going to be reading a story that has tragedy. We're going to be reading about a story that um, has this concept of scarcity, of hopelessness. And I don't know if that has been present in any of your stories. But what we're going to see, and this is the main arc I want you to hold on to today, that when all hope seems lost, God rewrites our stories. So this morning, we're going to dive in. Before I do that, I want to say something. Stories matter and are important. Your story matters and is important. When you think of your story, you can close your eyes or you don't have to, but just think of main characters in your story. Think of themes that you have seen in your story. Who are the people that have influenced you, who have brought you to the place that you are today, who have poured into you, who have loved you, included you, shaped you, befriended you? We're going to hear about the main characters in a little bit in our story. Part of our story, as I shared, was that we were global missionaries in Europe for 10 years. And you know within a larger story, you always have subplots, right? So one of my subplots in, on, in being a missionary was what I learned 
about God. What I learned is that we serve a big God who is on the move, calling all of us to him. We moved to Croatia to be church and denominational planters. That means we were asked to move to a country that did not, had never heard of this denomination. And we were asked to start and then eventually register a church. So we went there with these ideas that, of course, well, what we'll end up doing is plant a Croatian church and it will end up having Croatian leadership because this is what we had, had been educated to do. And you know what God did? He said, yeah, I have, I have something else planned. We ended up having a church that was led in four languages, Farsi, Arabic, Croatian, and English. Over 90% of our church ended up being asylum seekers and migrants. And the list of countries, there was one person in here that knew the country that I literally had never heard of, and it was Baluchistan. We had a man in our church from Baluchistan. God is on the move, and we serve a big God. Another subplot in, in my story is this powerful, powerful realization that we serve a God who pursues us and never gives up on us. While I was this missionary on the field for 10 years, you know what solidified me was my call to, to be ordained, to preach, and to teach, all while I didn't even think it would ever be possible. I want to invite you to think of the places in your story right now that hold significance for you. The places you experienced joy, challenges, where you, you learned life's lessons, ways that God widened your view of the world or even yourself or of God. You can even think of turning points, right? The, these significant things that when this happened, it changed the trajectory of your story. So now we're going to turn to the story of Ruth. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab. He and his wife had two sons. He and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Silion. And they were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Oprah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Silion also died. And so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So already you've heard the characters in our story. The two main characters are that we'll read throughout the end of the story is the daughter-in-law, Ruth, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. But another man is Elimelech. During a famine, he decides to bring his family to a neighboring country. A lot of people think this is a little bit ironic because Bethlehem means bread. So he left the land of bread out of fear and went to another country. This country bordered Bethlehem. Malon and Silian ended up marrying these two women, but sadly, tragedy strikes. And this culture for a woman to have no sons and no husband is, makes her extremely vulnerable. And as you will see, 
turns Naomi into a very sad, hopeless, and bitter woman. Moab was the homeland, though, of her daughters, even though it wasn't her homeland. So she decides to take her two daughter-in-laws back with her to Bethlehem, but realizes, this is sort of selfish of me. They need to stay here. They have a life ahead of them. So she tries to convince them to stay, and she says, I'll go by myself. Ruth 1, 8 through 9, she says, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them and wept aloud. So she's telling them to go. She really doesn't want them to go. But she's heartbroken, right? Her daughters do not want to leave her. They don't want her to go alone, but Naomi insists. One of her daughters listens to her and decides to stay in Moab. We can gather by the name of the book of the Bible that we're reading that Ruth is the one that says, I cannot leave you. Out of love and devotion, Ruth accompanies Naomi back to Bethlehem. Now that you have ha heard a little bit of what our, how our story starts and who the people are and where they have been and, and where they're going, I want to ask you to pay attention to the type of language we're about to hear. We're going to begin seeing um, from Naomi that tells us something really important about her. It's the narrative that she has of herself and of God. You see, when we go through tragedies, oftentimes the only ways we can make sense of them, especially if we don't have what I call a theology of suffering, is to blame God and to become bitter. Ruth 1, 12 through 13 says this, Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you. Because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. What do you hear here? Yeah, we hear despair. Naomi has lost all hope and believes that the Lord has even turned against her. In your stories of tragedy, has this happened to you? I am sure that some of you at some point in your story, you can relate to Naomi. I know I can. Some people call this the dark nights of their soul. Some call it depression. Some just don't have a lot of wins in life, right? They feel downtrodden. Sometimes life circumstances and a series of disappointments cause people to lose hope. And the ability to think that anything can be different. At our worst, what do we do? We dig into our feelings of abandonment, which is what we're seeing with Naomi. We conclude that others and even God has forsaken us. Do you know how this happens? Do you know when we're in crisis and in, and in pain? The front part of our brain shuts off. It doesn't allow us to rationalize thinking anymore. She can't rationalize that, well, my husband did make a decision to leave Bethlehem and, and move to Moab. And, and she can't rationalize that, that there was death everywhere. 
That was part of the suffering that happened during the people on the land at that time. What happens with our brains is it shuts off and the more primitive part of our brain takes over. Like Naomi, we can tend to form our understanding of God based on the primitive part of our brain. It's the emotional reaction to loss. Um, pardon me for all of this, but what you need to know about me is I'm getting a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and I love the integration of psychology and theology because God made us as holistic beings. And so we see in the story things that are still applicable to us today. So could we consider something? And I want to ask you, so here's the part, there's a turning point in our story, and I, I really want to invite you into this. Would you consider a new perspective of Naomi's story? And as you consider this new perspective, would you consider it of your own story? And perhaps the story of this church? Could we consider that maybe, just maybe, God's story was not the same one that Naomi had of herself? Let me say it this way. That maybe God says, the story I have for you is not the one you're telling yourself. When many of us find God, the narratives we had of ourselves, they had been shaped by so many things. They had been shaped by things from our childhood, from our history. Many of our stories were wrapped up in wrongdoing or loss or trauma or addiction or grief or sin. When God found us, we needed to consider that the story we were telling ourselves is not the story that God wants for us. That indeed God says, I'm inviting you into a new story. Some of us thought, I don't even need that God. When in reality, we did. Some of us said, this sin, it's not destroying me. When in reality, it was. Some of us said, we're happy. But in reality, we were filling the void of our lives with other things. God's narrative, the story he's inviting us into, is that we are his beloved. That we are adopted children of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. It's a story of new beginnings and belonging. The, the new story that God was writing for Naomi, he wanted to show her that he was taking her from ashes to new life from nothingness to fullness, from hopelessness to hope. Does this mean that God brought Naomi's back, husband back to her or spared her two sons from the famine? Many people are not spared from hardship and suffering. In their suffering, Naomi lost the ability to think that God was still calling her, that God still had purpose for her, that God could still provide for her. We can, we can become so enslaved by the narratives we have for ourselves that we lose the ability to see God. I believe that this is why the book is called Ruth, because God uses Ruth to remind Naomi of the truths that she could not see in her pain. Let me share a story of on the mission field. I was healing from a couple of years of a painful conflict, and I went to a conference, and we had this most amazing teacher leading devotional time, and during that time, I felt the Lord saying, can you give this to me? And I thought, mm, I'm not really ready. I'm sorry. 
And then later that night, while Emma was in bed, I brought my six-year-old at this conference. And, you know, as parents do when they stay in hotel rooms, you have to shut off all the lights and be really quiet while your children go to sleep. Has anyone been there? So I'm laying in bed. I'm not ready to sleep. And I'm just thinking, and God says, can you give this to me? (sighs) Fine. I can. And so I did. I released it. And I felt God saying this, there you are. When Naomi comes back to town, she sees her friends, and you know what she says? Call me Mara. My name is no longer Naomi. Mara means bitterness. Sometimes the narratives we have for ourselves, they can come from others. We get absorbed by what others think of us or or what they will think of us or what they want us to be. One of the most powerful concepts I learned in seminary came from a family systems class. It talked about sanctification. Are you ready? It talked about sanctification in this way. Understanding who God has created us to be outside of the system and narratives that have sought to shape or limit us. Who has God created us to be? God says the narrative you have of yourself, it needs to be laid down in order for you to fully live into being my beloved. So what is the narrative that God wants to give to Naomi? There is one word I want you to walk out of here thinking. Abundance. Going back to that full sentence that I wanted you to, the arc of the story is when all seems lost, God God rewrites our stories. He wants to teach her about abundance. He restores Naomi because of the devotion and faith and obedience of her daughter. Let's see how this happens. So in Ruth 2.2, as Ruth and Naomi start making their life there, Ruth asks one day, let me go to the field and glean. Let me do, let me do my share, she says. Let me glean among the ears of, ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. So gleaning at this time, it was a hospitality practice in ancient times. Gleaning is a process by which you can just um, gather the the extra harvest behind people who are actually gathering it in hopes that you could get scraps, a fragment. And so Ruth says, please let me do that. And so Ruth, as a foreigner, and her mother-in-law, they have no husband, they have no son. So she, she decides to glean behind people. They did not own land, so, so the scraps of food that they collected would sustain their lives. In the midst of gleaning one day, Ruth meets Boaz, whose name means redeemer. A wealthy man who happens to be a kinsman, which means the closest relative of Naomi in the area. Not only does Boaz agree to let Ruth glean, but he actually says, stay in the fields, in these fields that I own, and behind these women so that you will be protected. When Boaz finds out that Ruth is from Moab, he doesn't pass judgment on her, but instead he says this to her, may the Lord reward you for your deeds and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Now just as hard as it is to lay down the narratives we have of ourselves and accept new stories God wants to give us, you can imagine it would be hard for Ruth to really take that in, right? She's going, do we even deserve this full award, reward from the Lord? And yet we serve a God who has a mindset of abundance, not scarcity. And I want to just clarify, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. 
which is equating God's blessing with material wealth. I am talking about the abundance that God wants us to experience, which is new life, even when things seem impossible. We are to serve a God and believe in Jesus. We, we must believe in the impossible if that's the case, that a God would love us so much that God would prepare a way to give us new life and to conquer death. So like Naomi and Ruth, we have all been at the ends of our ropes, and we've wondered if God has, has even been there. That's a scarcity mindset. Where we lose the ability to believe another story could exist for us, where we cannot see the hope that might be right in front of us. At times in our lives and our stories, we get used to just holding on. You know, those white knuckles, like just holding on, barely hanging on. We get used to seeing gleaning as scraps, and we're grateful for the scraps. We're grateful for not dying. One of the first things I said to our church when we moved to Chicago is this sentence. Not dying is, the, is not the same thing as living. Let's look back at Naomi with an, and her story with an abundance mindset. Can we see that God allowed Ruth to stay with Naomi so she would not be alone? That God surrounded Naomi with a community that accepted her? God provided for Ruth by allowing plenty of ways to glean. God provided a way for Ruth to be protected. God would plant a kinsman, Boaz, where Ruth was gleaning. And God would allow Boaz to marry Ruth. And let's pause and ask. Can you change your story? Where have you seen abundance in your story that you overlooked? And now we're at that part of the story where we get to see another way that God restores Ruth and Naomi to a place of fullness. And do you know what it is? It's a baby. God brings a grandson for Naomi, a son of Ruth and Boaz named Obed. When the news of this blessing, Obed, reaches the whole community, the whole community celebrates about how God has restored them. They say in, in Ruth 4.15, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. God has brought this family from scarcity to abundance. Naomi went from only seeing her losses, not seeing the ways that she was cared for or provided for or the blessing to new life. She has come alive. Oh, and I didn't tell you the best part. Obed becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of a little-known king named David. You see, when all is lost, or when we think all is lost, God grafted us into his family, into his larger purpose and story. God is a God who restores, who brings life from ashes, who renews, who awakens, who redeems. Today, it is not lost on me that I am speaking to a church in transition and like we saw today, in transition, we can get disoriented. Maybe God came or had me come here to share that your church is beginning, in many ways, a new story. 
as you all reflect on Naomi's story, would you ask yourselves, how does God want to restory this community? How might God be rewriting the story of the table even now? And it is my prayer for you as you grow together and move through the transition in the days ahead that you would be a cross-shaped community. As we move into our time of communion, I, I believe that you all have elements that were given to you upon arriving. I would love for you to reflect, and, and as we, uh, right before we take communion today, I would love for you to reflect on what it means for the life of a cross-shaped community to take communion. In a culture of absolute efficiency and productivity and busyness, we take communion to pause, to rest in the promises of who God is and of what God has done for us. So we rest. In an individualistic culture where we care about getting our needs met and our agendas done, we take communion as the body of Christ, and it helps us remember that we all belong to each other. In a time in history where we've become so critical, we, we take communion to realize that we're receiving the life and blessing of Christ and that we can enter seasons of joy. Where we have become our own little gods, we take communion to empty ourselves and become full of Christ. So I invite you now to have your elements and remember these words that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, we all partake of this one bread. Paul continues in verses 23 to 26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also was handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was portrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So please take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So please take and drink. And now would you enter into a time of prayer with me? 
Lord, we are reflecting on Ruth's words this morning. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. God, we belong to you, and we belong to each other. We want to stop and say thank you for the ways you have restored us as your people, especially when all hope seemed lost in our lives. You have called us and empowered this body of Christ, this church, to share with others how we have been restored by you. We accept this call to be your active agents in your kingdom work. Would you give us strength today to be bold in sharing your story, the story you've given us with others? We accept your call to be a shelter of grace for those in this community who are starved of your love. Lord, you have invited us to expand even our tribal understanding of belonging, to open our arms wide to all nations. We are grateful for the story of Ruth because it reminds us that you are a God who has not forgotten us, who does not give up on us. You are a God who provides protection, gives new life to the foreigner. We are all alien residents in this world, Lord. Remind us that we are not to get too attached to this land and that we are to remain connected to the vine that is Jesus Christ. Lord, please free us in ways that, that we do not even know we have been enslaved to our unhealthy narratives. Free us in Christ's name for those ways of bondage that may we, so that we may dwell in your mercy and your companionship. We ask all of this in your precious name. Amen. If this message challenged you and moved you forward, personally or in faith, we encourage you to share it with someone who needs a message of hope today. And if you're interested or looking for ways to partner with us in our mission here at the table, head on over to thetablejoliet.org for more information.